Previously, on Nothing Borrowed, Nothing Gained. There are times in history that it becomes difficult to get financing. By the end of 79, I was paying 19.5%. Nobody wanted to take the risk, and so banks would just all of a sudden say, we're just not going to make any loans to agriculture at all. So the financial markets can go one way, and the ag markets are just really small in the broad context of all the global finance markets. Today, banks have about 50% of all the farm loans in this country. What they've done is they've written their underwriting standards to try to protect themselves against the heirs in that data. But where does the bank get that money? This is Nothing Borrowed, Nothing Gained, the story of ag lending, past, present, and future. I'm Sarah Mock. Have you ever had someone, a family member maybe, or a friend, wind up for a conversation about this incredible money-making opportunity they've discovered? The bummer thing about these conversations is they're rarely just a celebration of this person's success, right? This is the start of a pitch where inevitably the conversation will work around to how you can invest some of your time or money in this incredible opportunity and probably make some sweet cash for your troubles. For regular folks like us, this can be a pretty uncomfortable conversation. For bankers, it's a job hazard. There's actually a sheep dairy here in Montana. When we were looking at that specific request, it was one of the first ones all under one roof in the state of Montana. So I learned a lot about sheep dairies. That's Heather Malcolm. She's a vice president at Bank of the Rockies in Montana. And when an ag or food-related loan request comes across her desk, it's her job to figure out whether or not it's a sound idea. And that decision to make or reject a loan is not one that she or her bank takes lightly. We have quite a due diligence or an underwriting method when we look at all ag operations. We look at not only the borrower, the repayment capacity, the character, how much cash they have into, or equity into the transaction. We also take a look at the property itself is the property going to be what the producer wants it to be? Is it irrigated ground? Will it produce what we think it will? Or is there some other challenges with the property? It's safe to say that in many, maybe most cases, a lot of time and effort goes into the due diligence process before a bank makes a loan. And many of you have probably been on the other side of this equation, spending weeks or even months handing over the most private and sensitive financial information to help get a lender to a place of confidence and conviction. But how the heck can banks afford all this effort? To answer that, we'll have to learn how exactly a bank works. That's what we're going to cover today by exploring two major aspects of the ag banking sector. First, how banks function as businesses and where their money comes from. And second, what they add to the money equation to justify their existence. But let's start with the easier question here. How exactly does a bank, let alone an agricultural bank, work as a business? I put that question to Nate Franzine, the president of ag banking at First Dakota National Bank. In its most basic form, banks take deposits from citizens, pay them interest, pay them a fair return on those deposits, give them other services that are convenient to them from mobile banking to home equity to all kinds of things, but then turn around and lend that money back to uh, folks that need extra money. So if you think about it, it's a way to make money flow. Some people have more money than they need, so they have money in savings. 
other folks need to access money and the bank acts as that intermediary that uh, facilitates that. So that's the kind of basic business model of a bank. It's essentially a kind of trading house for money, where what the bank brings to the table is the ability to take on some of the risk. Let's connect those dots. Some people have excess money. They're savers. Savers would like their money to earn interest, which they can get by lending it out. They could lend it out themselves, of course, but that would require them to take on all the effort and risk of vetting borrowers, hunting down regular payments, and dealing with delinquencies. Then there's debtors, people in the market to acquire extra money. They would likely also have a hard time working with the many individual savers they might need if they want to access any significant amount of money without a bank. The bank then serves as the intermediary. They have refined the process of accumulating and protecting the treasure of many savers and of vetting and interacting with reliable borrowers. But I want to narrow in on a couple of Nate's words here. The idea that banks make money flow. I think that's an apt description, but also what banks do is often even more important than that. Banks don't just make money flow. They make it grow. Here's Brent. So if I take out a loan and then I put my deposit back in the bank, they can lend that deposit out again. And because we have fractional banking in the United States, banks only have to hold a certain amount of capital back for all their deposits. The loan gets made multiple times from the same initial deposit. Fractional banking is just about as close as you can get to creating money out of thin air. And banks do it all the time. It goes something like this. Say I put $100 into a savings account at my local bank. The bank can then take 90 of those dollars, saving 10% in reserves, and loan that out to a small business to make a capital investment. Say that small business uses that $90 to buy a piece of equipment, maybe from my neighbor. My neighbor receives that $90 in exchange and puts that into their bank account. Now the bank technically has $190 in deposits on its books. They can now use that $81 in my neighbor's savings, again, holding 10% in reserve, and they can make a new loan. If that $81 ends up coming back into someone's bank account, which could well happen, the bank will have turned that original $100 into $271 in deposits on their balance sheet. In that way, banks don't only help money flow where it's most valued, they help money grow as they earn returns for their savers. I'll grant that there are likely some of you right now who are feeling some anxiety around the idea of a business being as highly leveraged as the bank I just described. In other words, it's a little scary to think that there's only $27 in the vault when there's $271 owed to depositors. But the thing is, that level of reserves to leverage is not abnormal. Here's Nate again. Banks in general are very heavily leveraged. So we, we talk about leverage in a farm, for example, and 50% uh, owner equity or 50% debt to asset is considered approaching a little more heavily leveraged farm operation. In banking, we live at 90% leverage. We have 10% equity, 10% capital on average. Some banks have a little more, some have a little less, but that's basically the range of capital. And then everything else is leverage. And when I say leverage, our depositor dollars, those are liabilities. So those are our liabilities. We owe the depositors their money back if they ever need it. Our assets are the loans we make. So we take the, the money from those liabilities, our depositors, and we lend it out to, to other customers 
with the agreement they're going to pay it back over time. And that's really how a bank fundamentally works. And of course, to, because we take in money and lend it back out and have an obligation to pay it back to our depositors over time and have an obligation to lend it out in a fair and equitable manner to the public, we have regulations in place to monitor that and make sure that we're, we're upholding those uh, expectations. Just to flesh this out further, it's worth understanding that all the money a bank has to buy everything from the building the bank is housed in to those long, weird chains that the pens are on, to pay employees, to invest in things like e-banking websites, security guards, and state-of-the-art vaults. None of that comes directly from the money of savers. The cash to pay the bank's business expenses and to create its profits instead come from the interest on loans and other investments, minus the interest that's paid to savers. So if you've ever wondered how your local bank can charge you a 4% interest rate on a loan, but your savings account somehow only earns 0.4% interest, that 3.6% spread is keeping the lights on at your local branch. But how do banks determine those two interest rates, the one for borrowers and the one for savers? It's a factor of competition for sure, but it's just also a factor of the markets. What the economy in general expects for return on excess funds versus what the economy in general is able to charge on dollars lent out. And some of that we can control at a local level, but there's a lot of national and overall economic pressures on that as well. To Nate's credit, this is an aptly succinct, if not pretty vague, explanation of something that's really pretty complicated. So I asked Brent to flesh out the interest rate picture for us. The interest rate is really the, the price for money and its value is determined by you know, the interaction of supply and demand. And there's people who have capital that lend it. And all of us, if you have money in your bank account, you're supplying capital. And then there are people that have a demand for it. So they want to buy something that maybe they can't afford otherwise. You need a new car or a new house or something else. So you go out and you say, here's what it's going to cost to do it. And if there's lots of people that want houses and a lot of demand, that tends to increase the interest rate. Other things equal, but there's also supply issues too. And it gets you know really complicated by things like the Federal Reserve. When Nate said interest rates are a factor of the market, this is what he meant. Interest rates at every level are impacted by national and even global supply and demand factors, not least because capital markets across the economy are deeply interconnected. But there's also the question of why your specific bank's rates might be a little different than others. If banks can make loans to people that pay them more than it costs them to get those deposits, they make money. And they have a cost of creating those loans. They have to have a loan officer and they have to sell that credit or get customers. So they have to go out and attract people. And so there's a cost of doing that. And what they charge you has to compensate for that. Now, they can't just charge anything. So if I have a bank and I say, well, I'm going to capture a lot of credit risk, so I'm going to charge really high rates because I think a lot of people aren't going to pay me back. You won't make any loans, right? Because those same people can go to another lender and they might have a different view about the credit risk. And so they might offer that loan at a, a lower rate. So it's a true market where people make those assessments and make those loans. When Nate said interest rates are a factor of competition, this is what he meant. And this is an important point because listening to the financial news especially, it can make it feel like the interest rate is a 
kind of fact of nature, set by some mysterious force somewhere far away for reasons that are impossible to fully understand. But the thing is, banks, and individuals for that matter, actually do have a bit of flexibility when determining interest rates. And that flexibility comes down to their assessment of the risk. Low-risk borrowers are likely to get access to lower interest rates. But there's another factor in how banks set interest rates, both for borrowers and for savers, and it has to do with a different kind of risk, time. Here's David. It starts to become interesting when you start adding all these products, like a CD or a money market. And those are ways to get people to give their money for a little bit longer to the bank. And so I think another issue with credit is the timing and the duration of how long you're willing to give that money uh, to de- as a deposit or how long you're needing to borrow that money. To understand this time factor for interest rates, I want to introduce you to one of the most talked about charts in finance. Meet the yield curve, or more precisely, the interest rate yield curve. This metric tells us essentially what kind of returns you can get at any given moment from investing excess cash in U.S. Treasury bonds. Bear with me here. If you're not one for investing in the stock market or following financial news, this still matters. Because as long as you have a savings account, and particularly if you have a high-yielding savings account, like a CD, this information is crucial. Because though the yield curve specifically tracks U.S. Treasuries, it also does a good job capturing the economy-wide sentiment around the relationship between time and money. Here's Nate. It's supposed to slant upward as you go out longer periods of time, meaning if you're going to invest in a treasury that's a one-month treasury or a one-year treasury, meaning you want to be able to get back at your money in a short period of time, they're going to pay you a little lower rate. And the longer you're willing to let somebody use your money, the more rate they'll pay you for that privilege, so to speak. So we're no different in a bank. If you just want your money in a money market or in a checking account and you want to be able to access it immediately, any day, every day, then we're not going to pay you quite as much interest because we have to be ready to pay you any day. So we have to keep that money very liquid. We have to be able to give it to you on your demand whenever that might be. This time factor of money is crucial, especially for banks. Consider, I have a 30-year fixed rate mortgage. For a bank to make such a loan in a perfectly free market, they would have to have first tracked down a saver or many savers who are willing to part with hundreds of thousands of dollars in deposits for three decades. And to do so knowing that no matter the market conditions, their rate of return would never go up. Needless to say, very few people would probably opt for this arrangement. And if they did, they'd want to be paid handsomely for it. And banks get that. Now, if you're willing to give your money to us and leave it there for a longer period of time, we're willing to pay you more for that. So the longer you're willing to leave it, the more generally we're willing to pay you. And that's where you get into CDs, whether it's a one-year, two-year, three-year, four-year, five-year CD, we'll pay you more as you go out on that yield curve typically. And the reason we'll pay you more is we know with certainty we have access to use that money for that period of time. And the more certainty we have, the more ways we can deploy those dollars to guarantee some level of margin for us in the meantime. But when it's very liquid uh, money market or checking accounts, we, we have less guarantees. To drive this point about the yield curves home, I want to talk about an edge case. As Nate said, a normal yield curve slants upward because the longer you're willing to hand over your money for, the less risky it is to the institution you've lent it to, and thus the more interest they're willing to pay you on it. But sometimes, like recently in fact, 
the chart starts to look a little different. They start talking about an inverted yield curve. And inverted yield curves can be signs of a pending recession coming. That's one of the concerns in the market today. And really all an inverted yield curve is, is it means yield treasuries on the short end, one-year, two-year treasuries, have higher rates than five to 10-year treasuries. Now, when that happens, it, it's called an inverted yield curve. And that's generally not a healthy situation for the economy over the long term. So people start to get a little bit panicky when they see that happening. And that's a little bit of some of the fears that have been talked about here in recent times with this inflationary environment we're in. Because we have high inflation today, the market is saying, yes, rates on the short side have to go up to push back inflation. And then the long end is more of a longer term bet. So investors are looking at five or 10 year money and saying, okay, we have inflation today, but we have confidence that the Federal Reserve and others will get this inflation under control. So we realize short-term rates have to go up, but we think long-term rates are still going to settle back down eventually. And so the right place for long-term rates to be is something lower. And all of a sudden that yield curve starts to, to flatten out and potentially invert. The idea of the inverted yield curve matters to agricultural lending in no small part because recessions matter to agriculture. Though the ag economy is often counter-cyclical and so shielded from the worst of economic hardships associated with broad economic downturns, it's worth considering that some of the worst years for farm bankruptcies were between 2008 and 2011, aligning closely with the Great Recession. In other words, the ag economy is certainly not immune from broader economic hardship, which might be in the forecast given that the yield curve has been inverted for much of 2022. Another way to think about the yield curve is as a barometer for the duration of risk. Wherever the yield is highest, that's where the market believes the most risk is, and thus where they need to get paid the most to play. In the ag sector too, various investments come with different levels of short and long-term risk, and those risks can significantly impact the quality of an opportunity. Notice though, inverted yield curves don't cause recessions, nor do they actually move risk around. They simply indicate what people think will happen. This is the psychology of the market, the imperfect and often quite irrational aspect, what economists call the animal spirits. How do banks run their businesses in the stampede zone of these spirits? We'll get into their whole value add after the break. This podcast is brought to you by AEI Premium. AEI Premium is a website forecasting tool and community for those looking for an edge in their decision-making process. One of the key ways that AEI Premium members get that edge, best-in-class information about the agricultural economy. So one of the ways that we try to help insulate the chaos for decision-makers, one way we try to help improve the decision-making process is to provide better content. And there's a great quote that came from Nassim Taleb, who famously wrote the book about black swans, but he has this great quote that says, to be completely cured of newspapers, spend a year reading the previous week's newspapers. And one of the ideas that we try to, to pull from that is how can we write better content? And one of the ways that we do is data-driven insights. So when we think about these uncertainties out there, it's often helpful to go back and look at a decade or two decades or three or four decades worth of data, provide a base level, what is an average level of interest rates in the U.S. economy? What did the peaks look like? What did the low periods look like? And oftentimes this big, long series of data can really help us understand what that future uncertainty might look like. 
To become an AEI Premium member today, head online to AEI.ag. AEI Premium, drink upstream from the herd. Now, back to the show. I mentioned a few minutes ago that what the bank brings to the table is the ability to take on some of the risk. This is the service that a bank sells, but what risks exactly do banks take on? The answer is complex, according to Nate, but there are actually a lot of different kinds of risk that banks manage simultaneously. Our number one risk is always our credit risk. So our number one risk is we lend money out and the borrower can't pay it back. And the reason that's our number one risk is if you think about it, we're taking depositors money, we're lending it out. And if that borrower can't pay it back, now all of a sudden it puts the bank in a position where we may not be able to pay back our depositor when they want their money back. That's how banks fail. So ultimately that's our number one risk is credit risk. And that's why I tell our clients all the time, we're not equity capital. We're not in the business of taking high risk. We're in the business of lending money that must be repaid back. And so we're not taking the highest level of risk in the marketplace. Equity is much higher risk, right? If you want to own stock in a company, then you're taking the most risk. Debtors get paid first before equity gets their money. That's the pecking order of capital and access to capital. And there's a good reason for that, right? Because we have the obligation to make sure our depositors get their money back. And if we don't lend responsibly, we put our company in jeopardy of being able to do that. This is a key distinction to consider in our modern times when there is a lot of equity capital in the world, especially when we look at other sectors like high tech. I think the idea of equity investment, say from angel investors and venture capitalists, gets blended into our mental model of debt financing, as if they were different brands of similar products. But as Nate aptly explains, they are not. Selling a bit of a company to raise funds is a much riskier activity, And more importantly, it's an activity that banks often can't or don't participate in. For most of the last 20 years or so, venture capital has been relying on a model of making 100 investments, where as long as 10 are successful and one or two or three spectacularly so, the overall portfolio still works out. This strategy creates opportunity for 100 business owners to get access to capital to build something. And if most of them earn nothing at all, the venture capitalist isn't necessarily worse for wear. Banks do not work like this. Between the constraints of using savers' money, the regulation that comes along with that, the relatively high levels of overhead in banking compared to venture, and the need to moderate risk, the average bank doesn't have the ability to deal with high levels of failure or loan default, and banks tend to lend like this is true. But banks have other pressures they face as well, including internally. Interest rate risk is a significant risk to us. The savings and loan crisis in the 1980s, where lots of savings and loan banks went broke, the reason most of them went broke is because of interest rate risk. What they did that created problems for them is they took short-term money, they took depositors' money that was short-term, money markets, checking accounts, whatever, where they had to be able to pay them back quickly if the depositor wanted their money back. They took that money and they lent it out long-term on houses for 15 and 30 years. Well, the problem with that, of course, is if the depositor comes in and says, you know what, I want my money back now, we can't give them their money back because it's tied up in a 15 or 30-year loan. So we call it asset liability management within the banking industry. We're constantly managing how we price deposits, our liabilities, and how we price our assets, loans, and make sure that we're managing that so that it's balanced up 
well so that if a depositor comes in and wants their money, we can pay it back. Again, I think this idea of interest rate risk bears a fine point because understanding it requires understanding an aspect of banking that we haven't discussed yet. That is that banks often, especially over the very short term, can get capital another way, other than from depositors. See, on a day-to-day basis, banks are required to have a certain percentage of their capital and reserves. From my very first example, the $10 they need to keep in the vault out of my original 100. But a bank is a complicated business, and on any given day, the amount of loans they've made and deposits returned might have eroded the hypothetical cash in the vault below that $10 mark. For compliance reasons, the bank needs to make up the difference, often on a very short term, even just overnight. This money might be borrowed from other banks, or it might be borrowed directly from the Federal Reserve in some cases. But the key here is that very short-term rates can change a lot and fast, and banks who need to lend between themselves or from the Fed don't have the option to shop around like consumers do for a car loan or a mortgage. Here's Brent. The rate they pay to acquire funds, deposits or CDs or other things, loans from the Federal Reserve or other banks, are generally very short-term in nature. So those interest rates reprice frequently, daily, if not more frequently. So their cost of funds is changing almost every day. And if you make a loan for a long time that has a fixed interest rate, you all of a sudden have a tremendous amount of risk. Why? Because if you make that loan and and you don't have a big enough wedge between what you promised, what you gave the person the money for and they promised to pay you that and your cost of funds goes up, all of a sudden you're not getting paid enough interest. And so you're negative and you lose money on that loan. Losing money on a loan or a portfolio of loans isn't just bad luck for a bank. It's the difference between living to lend another day or going under. But there's a number of other risks that banks face as well. Business risk, competing with other banks, reputational risks, ensuring that savers have conviction in the good management of their funds, HR risk, regulatory risk, tech and cybersecurity risk, the list goes on and on. All of this comes together to cement the idea that, again, cliches aside, Banks are not only invested in the businesses that they lend to, they're dependent on them. Nate points out that, for example, if an ag loan can't be repaid and bankruptcy results, that's often a bad situation for the lender as well as the borrower. The better our clients do, the better we do as a bank. We're in sync on that. If our clients struggle, we're going to struggle as a bank. If our clients are having problems, I can guarantee you that's going to evolve into problems for the bank. And we have a very in sync and in-line motivation to work together to all be as successful as possible. Considering all the challenges inherent in lending in general, and then layering on the unique difficulties of banking farms with their long cycles, their often inconsistent cash flows, and their heavy exposure to global commodity markets, it begins to make a little more sense why, especially during tough economic times, banks have often dismissed ag lending as simply too risky. But despite its limitations, Nate argues that ag lending has actually been less risky than other kinds of business lending over the long term. If I look at our bank's track record, if I look at the banking industry's track record with charged off loans, losses on loans, basically loans they've made that weren't able to be repaid, the rate of losses on loans is higher to businesses than it is to farmers and ranchers over time. 
So I can make the case that it's less risky. I will tell you there's bankers that'll hear this podcast that'll say, I disagree with you, Nate Franzine. I think it's more risky. So again, it, to me, it gets back to where's your expertise? How well do you understand uh, what you're doing and, and how well you assess that risk? And that, that varies depending on the bank and their leadership and their expertise they have. Nate's final idea here is kind of what this whole story of ag lending is about. Yes, there are standard operating procedures and various tools that have helped to refine how banks and other lenders evaluate the riskiness of loans. But lending, especially ag business lending, is yeoman work. Doing it well requires a deep understanding of the space, the inherent risks, the natural cycles, and the specific players involved. The work of a highly skilled and successful lender is in identifying lending opportunities with little relative risk and a high likelihood of repayment and avoiding those scenarios where the risk is too high relative to the amount of interest available. There's no magic formula for determining the difference between these two, and it takes some serious due diligence, a lot of expertise, and probably some good gut instincts to do it well enough to earn interest for your depositors and keep the lights on. That, in short, is the value a bank provides, and though the process can be costly, doing it well can also be quite lucrative. But there's another side to the loan equation that is just as important, but way less commonly talked about. We've talked in depth about how a bank works, how it operates as a business, how it makes money on lending and grows. But that whole proposition is based on the assumption that, especially when it comes to businesses, credit can be valuable. And that receiving a loan is good business for the borrower as well as the lender. Because obviously, credit is not always valuable. Taking out a loan is not always a wise business decision. So when does the business model of lending work for borrowers? This explanation begs another example, and you'll forgive me that it's kind of lame. This time, I'll be the hypothetical business owner. Let's say I own the local diner, and I approach my bank for a $100 loan. I offer a business plan of how I'm going to use the funds that goes like this. Business is booming at the diner, to the tune of $5 in pure profit a week. But I'm having a hard time keeping up with the crowds. I have a cooktop where I can cook four hamburger patties at once, which really slows me down. If I could get the $100 I need to buy a second cooktop, I could make eight hamburgers at once, and that would double my productivity and help me earn twice as much profit, up to $10 a week. Let's say the bank does some due diligence and agrees with my assumptions. They'll offer to lend me the $100 for 50 weeks, and we agree that I'll pay $2 in interest per week. Including the principal that I owe, that's a $4 payment to the bank for my new cooktop every week, which you'll notice still leaves me with more than I would have otherwise made each week in profit. Plus, at the end of 50 weeks, I'll have an eight-burger cooktop free and clear. This is the kind of basic business lending situation where credit makes the most sense, where gaining access to funds in the short term leads to more growth over time than was otherwise possible. If the bank had turned down my loan, you'll note, I could have still bought the cooktop if I had reinvested all my profits in 20 weeks. But that 20 week delay would have meant foregoing growth and maybe even losing customers who would only return so many times to a restaurant with slow service. The notable thing in this example is that the interest rate on the loan represents only a fraction of the overall growth that I achieved. In other words, I earned five additional dollars and only had to pay four of them to the bank and those only for 50 weeks. But for better or worse, we don't always think about the business case for debt this way in agriculture as an investment in increased productivity. 
I think more realistically, what they do is they do it in gross dollars. So, well, I'm going to borrow this and that interest bill on that's going to be like $20,000. And when I do this work or buy this land or whatever, I'm going to have that $20,000 plus X dollars more left and I can service that debt. And so I think people think of it that way a little bit, but they don't necessarily think about it and realize that, well, sometimes the reason it works is because you're subsidizing it with your equity, the return to your equity, which is what you really don't want to do. So yeah, 4%, maybe I make a 4%, sometimes I'll make a 2%, but I still have enough money to service that debt because half of the money in this land is mine. They don't really realize that they're making then a really low rate of return on what they've invested because the lender gets paid first. So I think people think about it in gross dollars a lot more often than they do in rates of return. This point is subtle but important. Again, if I got a 4% loan to purchase an asset, in an ideal world, the asset is going to help my business earn more than 4% in additional return so that after I pay the interest, I'll still be earning a new profit. However, it's also possible in a real-life business to simply shift funds around to make the interest payments I need, even if I'm sacrificing margin or worse, equity to do it. In other words, I took a loan for 4% to buy an asset, and if it's only earning me 2%, I have to pull the additional 2% in interest payments from somewhere else in the business, simply to break even on the loan. Consider my previous scenario. If I had accepted a 6% weekly interest rate to buy the $100 cooktop, I'd be earning $10 a week and would owe $8 of it to the bank, including the principal, leaving me with only $2 in weekly profit, less than I had before I got the loan. In this case, the better decision might actually be to wait the 20 weeks and buy the new cooktop with cash. Were I to accept this loan, this is a terribly risky situation for both my business and the bank. And perhaps concerningly, this is actually a not uncommon situation. It always drives me crazy. You might go to buy a car or something. And so what's the first question the salesman will ask you is say, you you have something to trade. What's the first question he's going to ask? How much are your payments now? Okay. And he's like going to try and talk you into buying this new car and keeping your payments the same, something like that. And so people think of it oftentimes in that way. And it's not a very good way to think about it. It doesn't necessarily matter what your payments are. The question is, what's the credit going to cost me that I'm going to have to use? And is it a good decision to buy this car on credit or not? Almost everybody would know that going to Walmart and putting a toaster on credit is a bad decision. Like it's not a very smart thing to do. You don't want to buy something like that uh, on credit. So they inherently understand that. But then when it comes to million dollar investments, they don't necessarily think through it the same way. So the question is, how are they approaching? Are they really thinking about what is the cost of credit? Is that the most effective way to control this asset? Maybe it's leasing the asset would be a better way to do it. Maybe it's not having the asset is a smarter thing to do. That spread, this idea of like, I'm going to take this money and then at 3% and I'm going to make 4% or 5% or 10%. What's often not talked about is the risk. Like you're taking on the risk and that's why creditors stand in line at bankruptcy court. They get the first 
crack at getting their money back. And as you step out on that yield curve, as you reach out to get higher and higher rates of return, you take on more and more risks. So I think that's another element that gets woven into that debt story. I think sometimes we get the process of evaluating an investment and then deciding how we should pay for it. We intertwine those. And so I guess in an ideal world, you'd say, is this a good investment? Is this a house a good purchase? Is this commercial real estate a good purchase? Is this farmland a good investment for our business or for me individually? And then the second piece of that is, okay, how should I pay for it? Should I use equity? Should I use some form of debt? Should I use a short form of debt? Should I use long-term debt? How should I structure this to pay it off in a year or three? Or maybe should I pay it off over 20 or 30 years? So sometimes we get those flipped. And that goes back to Brent's conversation about you going to go buy the car. And the first thing the person asks you is, what are your current payments? Because if you can afford the current payment, how much car can they give you over how many years? And if we're not really good man, managers, we flip that around. So the bank approved me to buy this house at this much money, or they approved me to buy this farmland at this much money. And that's what can get us into trouble is now we ask, how much can I get approved for? And then we back in that, yeah, it's a good investment. I got approved from the bank to do this. And I think that can get us into trouble if we don't untangle those decisions. After all this discussion about how conservative banks have to be and how many different kinds of risk they manage, the story of the car salesman here seems counterintuitive. Car loans, like mortgages, can be a little different from business loans because the return they offer to borrowers is calculated more in getting to work comfortably or having a roof over your family's head, rather than dollars and cents margin. But it's also not so different, as David mentions here, compared to what can happen in ag lending in particular, which is that borrowers will determine how much to borrow based on what the bank will lend them, rather than based on the actual return to the investment. In the context of the story we've told here, that might seem incongruent when lenders want to be good partners and to experience success when their borrowers are successful. But what Nate didn't highlight in his discussion of how banks work is that banks are not necessarily concerned with how a farmer collects the funds they use to repay their loan. At some level, they can't be. Trusted partner they might be, but bankers don't usually have active decision-making power in a farm business, nor would they necessarily want that. So they have to protect their investment some other way. That other risk mitigator is collateral. Or the assets a bank determines it can take over to recoup its costs if the loan and interest can't be repaid. From the farmer side of the table, collateral, usually in the form of owned assets like farmland and equipment, is not really on the table because the money they plan to repay the interest with is going to come from growth from future earnings realized through the loan. But from the banker side, collateral is very much on the table. This is what makes the I'll take whatever the bank thinks I'm good for theory of debt so problematic, because the bank is not lending based on what the farmer is likely to earn. They're lending based on that combined with the collateral value. To return to the diner, the bank would offer me a 6% loan on a 5% opportunity, despite it being a pretty crappy business decision on my end, because they can see that I have another cooktop, a bunch of utensils, and a building that, if push comes to shove, will make them more than whole on the loan and the interest. To hammer home this point, banks are businesses, a business with its own strategies, its own risks, its own customers and vendors. An individual banker can surely be a trusted advisor, one who does have incentives aligned with a farm business. That is, to see enough success and growth to comfortably repay the loan. But a bank, in general, is not in business exclusively to serve its borrowers, nor do banks, barring perhaps a few of the very largest, have access to infinite capital or the ability to absorb infinite loss. 
Banks can and do fail. And to avoid doing so, they have to make money. Enough to keep the lights on and to compete in a sector that's becoming increasingly consolidated. Knowing this, among other things, the idea of trusting the bank to determine the right level of debt for you or your business is ludicrous. You are the bank's customer, and it is usually in a business's interest to get their customers to buy the highest amount of product that they can possibly afford. Bear with me on one final trip to the diner. It's worth pointing out that the second loan we discussed, with the 6% weekly interest on my cooktop, is likely the better loan for the bank. It earns them higher interest on the same investment, and as long as I don't shop around too hard and find a better rate, they'd be happy to charge it to me. Knowing that if my precarious situation goes south, they'll be first in line for my assets at the bankruptcy hearing. A good heuristic to take away from this conversation, perhaps, remember that a banker's first priority is what's in the best interest of the bank. There are surely many that prioritize and celebrate shared success with their customers, but the bank is running their own business and managing their own risk. It's up to you to run yours. This is just one of the reasons why it's so important to understand how banks work, because it's key to knowing how to think about borrowing for a business in general, but also how to think about negotiating for capital and debt, and critically, how to understand being rejected for a loan. If you go on Twitter or just read anything about new farmers or something, there's always this, we need credit. We need access to loans and the bank won't give me a loan. Well, (laughs) oftentimes when that's the case, the solution is not to make the bank give you a loan or to encourage the bank to give you a loan. The reason the bank probably not giving them a loan is because they didn't think it had a high chance of being successful. And so, of course, then if you get the loan, it could work out really well, or it could work out really poorly. And then there's a problem. Now I've got this loan. Somebody has to help me pay it back, or I should have never taken this out. Credit, I think everybody wants it, but it oftentimes the private sector doesn't want to give it out because they know that not everybody can repay it. Banker kind of is like the bouncer at a party. You check in with them to get access into the party. So you're really friendly with them, and it's it's the start of something really exciting and really good. And then when things go really bad in the party, and a fight breaks out or something gets really serious, the bouncers go in, and they clean it up, and they're the last person you want to see at the end of the night. So I guess the other way to think about this is Purdue has done this decades-long survey called the Large Commercial Producer Survey. And... And one of the interesting questions is that they ask, who's the trusted advisor? Who is the advisor that producers turn to to get good advice? And oftentimes, if not every time, ag lender is at the very top of that survey. And they're asking about agronomists and all other folks in the ag space. But it's the ag lender who's that trusted advisor who they really put a lot of stock in what the banker says. A lot of stories in ag will start with, I was talking to my banker. That's whatever rumor or anecdote he's going to share. Like It's going to be really important because I talked to my banker about this. But then on the other side, when the euphoria ends, we always as a human species want to find a villain. We want to have somebody who we can point to and say, this is the reason why things went bad. And it could have just been the nature of the beast. There aren't necessarily people out there who are acting in bad interest. There's just bad circumstances. And oftentimes that lender is the one who tells that grower that, no, we can't give you another line of credit or we have to foreclose on this 
property. And so again, this gets back to this idea that banker, they're not necessarily the one that was responsible or they're at fault for delivering the bad news, but they're often the messenger that delivers that bad news. Now that we understand the business proposition of debt for a business, which is in short to fuel greater returns than the cost of the interest, it's a bit clearer why banks often refuse to lend to farmers when they're at their most vulnerable. To give a loan to a producer to, say, help them dig out of a financial hole is not only a dangerous proposition for a bank who, I'll say again, owes essentially all their money to their depositors, it's also counter to the whole idea of business lending. A cash infusion might help in the short term to overcome a hurdle for a farm business, but if overcoming the hurdle only leads the farmer to breaking even, how will they afford the interest? On top of that, what if the infusion doesn't lead to break-even at all, but simply staunches the financial bleeding temporarily? In the aftermath, the cash flow will, in all likelihood, still be going the wrong way, but now faster, because there will be interest piled on top. Possibly the best news on the ag banking front to share is that there are some pretty smart people in the ag banking space who care a lot about the sector and the people in it. Take Heather Malcolm, the Montana banker from the top of the show, and the potential borrowers who hoped to open a sheep dairy. After some rigorous diligence, Heather approved the loan, and the business is thriving. But even if the bank had said no, that would not necessarily have been the end of the road for those big sky milkers. There's more than just banks lending to farmers, and there has been for quite some time. The first farm credit loan was made in 1917 to a guy by the name of A.L. Stockwell, and he had a family farm in Larned, Kansas. And so he received the system's first long-term, low-interest, amortized agricultural loan. <laughs> but what's farm credit been up to since then? That's next time on Nothing Borrowed, Nothing Gained. AEI.ag presents Nothing Borrowed, Nothing Gained is a production of AEI Premium a website and forecasting community where ag nerds like us write, talk, and develop our ideas about the future of American agriculture. To learn more about becoming an AEI Premium subscriber and gaining access to a lot more great content like this podcast, visit AEI.ag. If you've enjoyed the show, please rate, review, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts, and look out for Ag Economic Insights on social media at Ag Economist, or email us directly at askus at AEI.ag. This show was edited, produced, and co-hosted by me, Sarah Mock, along with David Widmar and Brent Gloy. Special thanks to Heather Malcolm and Nate Franzine for joining us on this episode, and further gratitude to the show's managers, Emily Rainieri and Sarah Hubbard, and the rest of the AEI team, including Jeff, Michael, Mason, and Aaron. And until next time, remember... The good times never last.